I did find it particularly irritating that, that the ultimate insider, uh, senior presidential aide in the second term of, uh, of an administration, feels that he's a, an outsider and, and uh, everybody on the outside is part of the establishment. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm in Palo Alto with FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Also joining us from DC is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior future of war fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Finally, we have a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Mark Landler. White House correspondent at the New York Times and author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power. Terrific book, which I recommend everybody immediately go out and get. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, the following conversation took place. Mark, the book's out. Hillary Clinton... Barack Obama, egos figure in the title. I can't help but turn the conversation right from the get-go to the recent New York Times profile of Ben Rhodes, one of the architects of Americans' foreign policy. And I would just like you to describe your take of it. Well, you know, it's the most talked about story, and I'm almost um, despairing of saying anything new or original. Um, I think what strikes me about it above all is whatever uh, conception Ben had as to what he hoped that story would turn into, it it seems to have come out exactly the reverse. Um, Well, that seems to be very similar to the same with their foreign policy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I think think he thought after seven and a half years of a hundred-hour week sitting in a basement windowless office, he was entitled to a victory lap. Um, but they've been uh, taking nothing but victory laps. They have, and 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 in fact, it sort of is a Aren't nice. Are you supposed to have a victory before a victory lap? <laughs> um, it was a it's nice more bookend to go straight to the lap. <laughs> right. It... Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a thought here. I was trying to finish. Um, no, okay, it just go it, on. Go it, ahead. It struck Give it a me. Shot. It struck me as 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 in a way very much in keeping with the uh, with the Jeff Goldberg interview, uh, where uh, you know the the. The person in question, in this case, Ben, not the president, lets down his hair uh, with all kinds of consequences that would have been predictable if people had thought them through, but maybe didn't seem predictable at the time. Um, So, you know, I I work at The New York Times and the magazine, the Sunday magazine uh, has has been good to me. So I'm I'm sort of loath to get into the debate over the way the article came together. Um, But, you know, obviously, when you have an administration that puts so much weight in creating a narrative and weaving a narrative, um, they've, they sort of ended up being hoist by their own narrative in this case. Um, and there's all kinds I of... I thought that. the way the New York Times worked was that tablets were handed directly down, I guess, to Mount Sinai or someplace, and then they went straight to the New York Times and became news stories. Well, um, you know, I hate to disabuse you of that, David, but there's a little <laughs> bit of independent thought and analysis the analysis that happens in between. Um, oh. I mean, I, I just will point out by way of a factual observation that um, a few days before that piece appeared, uh, the Times did run a 2,000-word excerpt from 
from my book and in sorry to we're going to say book. that that partially compensates for <laughs> yes. their failure of judgment in running the whole Ben Rhodes piece. So okay, but, so on the plus side, they were wise enough to run an excerpt from your book. Well, but this the, the reason out. I raised this particular excerpt um, is, is that to sell the book is to sell the book. Yeah, but but my secondary reason uh, is that it's um it it was all about the period of time in the Iran negotiation that predated uh, Hassan Rouhani being elected. So, I mean, the central assertion. Uh, in that piece was that Ben Rhodes had successfully fooled uh, these naive reporters into thinking the Iran story began with the election of Hassan Rouhani. Um, And, you know, my chapter in my book, four-fifths of it happens before Hassan Rouhani was elected. And I happen to believe the Omani channel and these bilateral negotiations were really important. Uh, And nor, for that matter, did I ever feel that anyone was trying to put a story over on me. This is what puzzles me about it. I don't actually recall this grand uh, false narrative being foisted on people. So maybe I wasn't in the group of people that were being were being gulled by this, but that's the part of the story that I'm a little bit puzzled by. You're not one of those 27-year-old know-nothings not. that Ben Rhodes <laughs> plays like a master puppeteer? I, I'm like the 47-year-old know-nothing. <laughs> what I so love about the Ben Rhodes interview was that he actually disproves his own argument. Right? Like the, I'm a genius. Uh, I've been spinning everybody. Nobody's smart enough to see it. To have given that interview, especially before you're even out of office, shows just a colossal lack of awareness. In fact, if he had consulted anybody in the foreign policy community, he, he holds in such derision. Any one of us would have said, "Man, you don't want to do that I, because just because you are going to look like an idiot." You're part of the blob. As yeah, I was reading it, I was thinking of the great defense lawyer Clarence Darrow, who advised all of his clients that no man was ever convicted based on testimony he did not give. Why did Ben Rhodes give all of his enemies so many decks well, to I, shoot I, at? Well, but he didn't, he didn't think he was giving his enemies decks to shoot at. And I want to turn to you, Rosa, um, but I want to do it in a bit of an unfair way because Uh-oh. you're a sort of— Oh, please. You are, you are kind of, uh, minute, you know, kind fair. of partner. <laughs> you're, whoever said this was fair, right? <laughs> you know, we're the blob. We don't have to be fair. We're, you know, ma- ma- master manipulators of the world. Actually, I was thinking of changing the name of this from the ER to the Blobcast <laughs> because this is—because we know he hates us, okay? But your partner in crime, Tom Ricks— wrote for us a story about this. Did you happen to see it? I did. He used a bad word, so I didn't read it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was the bad word he used to refer well, we, to we, ben we don't use the bad word on a family podcast like this, but it started well, with David's a, about to. And ended. David's about to. <laughs> David's I think always he called waiting him... for that opportunity to use a bad word on our podcast. That's, that's also wrong. Yeah, it is so wrong. But he called him an asshole. He did. And, that's true. And, and I got an email from a very prominent columnist, who I won't mention, who said it was the best and most succinct description of Ben <laughs> Rhodes that he'd ever heard. What I thought the virtuoso note... By by our colleague Tom Ricks was, was that after posting the article with that incendiary title, he did a follow-up post. He did research on the actual definition of the term, cited a book of psychology in which it's referenced, 
to justify having explicitly used that term. Only in Washington does somebody have to go and look up the definition of the term asshole. <laughs> um, but, Rosa, I'm just, you know, what is your take of all of these doings from your position at a seat at the center of the blob? Uh, you know, so I know Ben Rhodes. I worked with Ben Rhodes a bit, and... I, the thing that surprised Ben Rhodes was a friend of mine. Ben and, Rhodes was yeah. not a friend of mine, um, but not that notwithstanding, I, I I'm a little surprised by the things that other people are surprised by in that article. I mean, the big pseudo scandal coming out of this article is seems to have been uh, framed as, oh my God. The Obama administration lied about the Iran deal or at the very least tried to manipulate the press, that other blob of 27-year-old blobs, um, into thinking something that was not true in a way that made the administration look better than it should have. Um, and B, it turns out that Ben Rose is somebody who some people think is an asshole. How shocking. And, and I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, so this is not even – you know, this is this is not exactly man bites dog or even dog bites man to say presidential communications aide uh, attempts to manipulate press to make president's policies look good. And by the way, some people think he's a jerk. Doesn't you know? This is not that shocking. What to me is the sort of shocking thing, and and this this used to shock me when I was still in the administration too, is how fixated these guys are on. The, the conviction that they are master strategic communicators when it has manifestly been a huge strategic communication failure pretty much all along, you know, and the president's approval ratings on foreign policy are lower than in any other area. Uh, you know, well over half of the country disapproves of his job performance on foreign policy. What's kind of amazing to me is that the same small group of people, Ben Rhodes and several others, have continued to do exactly the same thing for almost eight years now, despite the overwhelming evidence that they do it badly. And this article is yet one more piece of evidence that they think they're strategically communicating, and yet they are <laughs> strategically communicating themselves into a very bad place. And, and that's a okay, little well, stunning. That's the best critique I have heard, Rosa. Bravo. Thank you, Corey. Yes. Corey, you're living up to the Twitterverse reputation that you have for just patting everybody on the back. Okay, well, that's because we're nice podcast. people here. We, we are just, not assholes. We are, we are we nice. Are not. And we, we even are, just want to say never been an Ben asshole. Rhodes, you, we know that deep down in your heart, you two are a good human being. And we applaud you for that deep down. Okay, well, let's not go crazy. I'm not going <laughs> uh, Okay, let's turn back to Mark, who's really confused. <laughs> this doesn't sound like New York Times to him. But, but, but Mark, you. If You've he just has written... not left the studio. No, right. I'm here. I'm here. I'm just I'm, I'm kind of thinking through how I play in this game because it's like a three-dimensional chess game that I've joined and <laughs> I'm slightly daunted. No, Go don't ahead, be David. Daunted. Just, just, just open up. Leave okay? me by the but hand. But whatever you say, we're going to tell you that we totally agree with everything you said, so don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Okay. But so here you've written this book, a great book on the inner workings of foreign policy in the Obama administration with Important insights about how foreign policy might work in the Clinton administration. We'll get to those in a, in a little bit. But, you know, Rosa just provided this bald-faced whitewash of Ben Rhodes <laughs> by saying that he was just a lowly communications aide. But he's actually the deputy national security advisor and widely considered to be one of the most influential foreign policy minds 
in the Obama administration, despite the fact that he came in with no foreign policy as a twenty-seven year old, whatsoever, as a twenty-seven-year-old. Um, so, I, I, I would like to turn to you as an expert on this, and ask you, how central is this doofus? Um, well, <laughs> interestingly, the article doesn't at all get into the areas where he he actually may have had an impact. I mean, and I do think he'd had an impact in two particular cases. He he was someone who wore down resistance to the uh, Burma diplomatic opening uh, within the West Wing. Um, that was something that was really conceived and formulated in the State Department. Kirk Campbell was a key player in that, uh, and Jake Sullivan, but um, they kind of um, made Rhodes an ally, and he wore down people like Samantha Power and Tom Donilon, who had all these uh, qualms about reaching out to the generals. So that's one example. And then, obviously, the Cuba example. And I'm sure if you're Ben Rhodes, you're probably just wondering why um, the writer of that story, you know, gave you exactly half a paragraph for Cuba and feeling a bit silly about that. Um, I mean, he didn't formulate the Cuban opening, but he did conduct, uh, he was one of the, the, the people who went out to Toronto a few times and met with the Cuban officials and kind of led that effort, um, that covert, those secret negotiations. Um, and those are the two areas where he arguably had, an, had a real impact as opposed to just a weaver of narratives. Um, and neither of them are uh, – Burma, I'm not sure the word appears – in the piece at all, and Cuba's dismissed in a single paragraph. So from the point of view of what Ben might have hoped was in that article, it clearly wasn't in that article. Um, and I don't want to overstate his, his role in either of those. This is not a guy who formulates policy, but he is a guy who I think because he has Obama's ear and confidence or had it until last week, um, was capable of kind of playing a role in the West Wing for pushing forward projects that he thought were in the president's interest. I mean, didn't, for example, in the first term um, when uh, there had been a nine-month Afghanistan review uh, and the conclusion was made to announce that we were going to send in um, a, a bunch of troops for uh, another protracted period, wasn't it actually in the speechwriter's office occupied by Ben Rhodes that they then decided to bolt on that the same speech announcing that the troops were going in would announce they were leaving? And isn't that kind of like policymaking, even if it's a kind of lousy way to make policy? Well, that's – I mean, I did a profile of Ben Rhodes a few years ago, um, and in that profile I quoted Mike McFall at the very end of the story as saying, you know, the guy who holds the pen – has a lot of influence in an administration with it that often seemed to make policy by giving presidential speeches. So to the extent that Rhodes was shaping these speeches, yeah, he probably did. And I don't remember that precise anecdote, David, but I don't doubt it by any means that you're right about that. I think the one um, distinction I would draw is that in the first term, when you actually had a cabinet with some people in it who had genuine influence, Gates, Panetta, Clinton... Um, and Rhodes was, you know, really purely a junior speechwriter. Um, By the way, this is the headline from this so far is New York Times White House correspondent says no one in cabinet has influence in the second. Well, term. I'm getting there because I actually I'm willing to slightly say that. I mean, so if you if you look at the the war cabinet in the first term, I mean, those those were the people whose voices really mattered, in my view. And even Dennis McDonough in those days was an important voice, but not as central as he became. I mean, my contention would be that once that 
group cycled out, and it was Kerry and Hagel in those jobs, um, that that the, the this sort of White House inner circle, um, their power really became magnified. And to me, the kind of telling episode was when Obama decided to hold off on the threatened missile strike against Syria, and, and he convened basically Rhodes, Dan Pfeiffer, Susan Rice, sort of the West Wing crowd led by Dennis McDonough, and didn't bother calling his defense secretary or secretary of state until the meeting was all over to tell them the decision had already been made. I mean, so I think that Rhodes, McDonough, um, that, that crowd of inner circle people became um, – you know, much more influential in the second term and arguably had more of an impact on actual policy development than they did in the first term. So I thought the most interesting part of the interview of the article was Leon Panetta's comments um, and the ease with which Panetta was affixing responsibility for bad things happening squarely in the White House and making clear that the cabinet wasn't consulted. He hadn't seen the letters that were sent to the Iranians. Everything was a surprise to him, which shows, actually proves Rosa's earlier point about the unpopularity of the administration's foreign policy, because he's lost his own cabinet members. Well, yeah, that, I mean, yeah. that's an important point, Rosa. You know, I, I know in your title, it says something about the future of war, which is very exciting. But you know, it is to, a to, great job title. It's a really good title, right? Because who like who, who intimidates her? Nobody. But as she's looking backwards in her, you know, you have to be a war historian to deal with this. Uh, the internal wars within this administration, I think, occupy a special place. Because do you recall, and maybe Mark, you might recall one, any administration in history when so many former cabinet men, members wrote memoirs or gave speeches that blew up the administration while it was in progress, as has been the case with Gates, Panetta, Petraeus, Jones, and Clinton? Yeah, I I, I can't. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't any, but I'm not a historian of presidential administrations. Um, but but no, it is Don't it, worry. Corey's going to come up Corey, with something from the James Buchanan administration good. in two seconds. Well, I, I, I mean, I mean, didn't mean that as a compliment, but I'm taking it as one, David. I, I, I do I think that, that one of the common threads in all of these uh, memoirs and interviews that former cabinet members and other powerful figures have given, uh, common thread has been that the A, the White House micromanaged them, B, the White House didn't – wasn't really terribly interested in input from them – and see that a very small group of, of people who were not foreign policy experts or military experts uh, but were really campaign aides and speechwriters had too much control over what got to the president and what got discussed and so forth. And, and Dennis McDonough, you'll recall, his initial job title was Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communication, uh, uh, like Ben. That was, that was conceptualized initially as his job, uh, and he moved on from that, obviously. Um, but but I, I, I do think that part of Ben's role and Dennis's role from the beginning was was really to be gatekeepers and in, and not only gatekeepers, but also enforcers. I, I, I was on the receiving end of a handful of chastisements from uh, both of them at various points when when it was deemed that I was off message or was somehow permitting my principal to become off message because I was writing some of my principal's speeches at the time. Uh, and I spent I actually spent a lot of time. Do you mean by your principal, Michelle Florence? Yeah, the next yeah, Secretary I, I, there of a couple of a couple of times I, I accidentally got her into trouble by 
by putting an off-message thing or two into speeches uh, unwittingly. <laughs> um, but that did not matter. Um, you still were punished. Um, but, but the thing that really baffled me uh, early on in the administration, um, and I had come in as someone who was just so and could not have been more enthusiastic about Barack Obama, and uh, was just this dawning sense of he's got these people around him who are doing him a disservice. They think they know it all, but – and in fact, if the polls suggested that everybody thought the president's foreign policy was wonderful, then I would say, OK, I guess they do know it all. But in fact, they went from disaster to disaster, but somehow that only made them more sure of themselves and their their rightness. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking, oh, poor Barack Obama. It's so sad that he is being served so badly by the staff if only he had access to – other the advice of other people, et cetera. And then at some point, I finally realized what I think Panetta and Gates and many other people eventually realized, which is that Barack Obama was surrounded by these people because he liked to be surrounded by these people. Right. And, you know, you can't absolve him of that. But I, I just want to clarify something for our dozens of listeners. <laughs> um, wow, it's we have expanding. Two last time. <laughs> well, there's just a lot of Twitter activity that suggests we're, we're up to dozens sitting in their college dorms, <laughs> you know, applying Clearasil and wondering if they could get a job in this world. Uh, but you made this point. That's the There might be a job opening soon <laughs> as Deputy National Rhodes Security Advisor for Strategic right. Communication. You don't have to know anything. Uh, the, yeah, the message of this is, right, if you're studying international relations because you want Ben Rhodes' job, change to an English major. But but if you if you uh, you, you just used uh, 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 or made a point that the uh, uh, Obama administration uh, was rated lowly by opinion polls on their foreign policy, and in my view, Mark, the you know the opinion polls on foreign policy are the second worst indicator of our what our foreign policy should be after the foreign policy itself, which is the worst indicator of what it <laughs> should be. Wait, um, but, <laughs> I got Well, think that, about David. it. Get out a pencil. Figure it out. Um, but, but, you know, as you studied this administration, one thing that happens in NSCs historically um, is that there is a learning curve and people get better at their jobs. Tell me what evidence you saw of the, the improvement of this inner core uh, in terms of doing their jobs over the course of this administration in the course of your reporting. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily saw an improvement because often they would, they would learn a lesson from one episode, which they then apply to the next episode, but it, it wasn't necessarily the right lesson. I mean, I think, for example, after Libya... Um, which the president grudgingly agreed to intervene in uh, and then later told people he had regrets about it, you know, that then filtered into his decision on Syria, um, not just to avoid a major intervention, but to even avoid entertaining, uh, you know, any kind of steps that could have changed the outcome on the ground. So in a way, I, I feel like he kept learning lessons and then applying them to different situations um, in ways that, that didn't produce a better outcome. Um, and in terms of, I mean, to go back to the point I made earlier, uh, I think that the problem was as the inner core, these guys began to think they knew more and more, they yes. began to think they didn't need to listen to anyone else. And so while they tolerated having a team of rivals in the first term, 
um, they kind of did without the team of rivals in the second term. And so they didn't think that and, – and I'm not saying Chuck Hagel did bring much to the table. I, most people who covered him <laughs> didn't think he did. But the truth was he was – a, a senior figure who'd served in the Senate and fought in Vietnam and, uh, and you know, and John Kerry's easy to lampoon, but he is a man who ran for president and knows a bit about the world. And and I thought the, con- the contempt um, that the White House had for these guys uh, was was just sort of palpable in the second term. So I think the problem is um, the lessons they thought they were learning were that they didn't need to talk to outsiders anymore, and that then led them into even more perilous situations. I mean, I do think it's kind of astonishing when you think about it that the president made a decision as momentous as he did on Syria and didn't bother consulting his two main national security cabinet members until it was finished. I still think that's one of the most telling episodes in the story of an insular White House. Oh, no, it's the catastrophe. That, that afternoon, I think August 31st, 2013, or something like that, um, is definitely the moment that the Obama administration sealed its fate in this regard. But, Corey, you know, we have a couple minutes left. I want to go to everybody once again briefly. We're going to finish, by the way, this session talking about uh, the Obama team. And then in the next session, where we know we have Mark back. We're going to talk about the parts of his book that pertain to Hillary Clinton, since she's going to be the next president of the United States. Um, And I say this because a recent story um, indicated that uh, in terms of public opinion, Donald Trump currently ranks behind headlice, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and uh, root canal surgery. Um, But but we'll get to that later. Mark is indicating a kind of a high sense of self-esteem among the Obama team, uh, as though they had had a learning curve when he is actually reporting that there is an inverse learning curve. One of the elements of this that just tickles me, because I'm that kind of a jolly guy, is the, the contempt that these innermost insiders of the inner sanctum of the White House have for what they call Washington insiders. They've fought their whole life to be the innermost insiders. They are smug as can be because they're the innermost insiders. And yet the people that they're going after in this blob are so-called Washington insiders (laughs) who actually can't be insiders because they reject what the Obama team has done And since the Obama team is the inside, by definition, they're outsiders. But maybe I've got this wrong, and I'd like you to help me clear this up. No, David, I yeah, good I'm luck, pretty Corey. confident. I'm pretty confident you never get tired of hearing me say you are exactly right. I don't. Um, but so Will Wexler from the Center for American Progress and I are doing this study of national security uh, best practices. And one of the most interesting interviews anybody gave us was pointing out that uh, that the blob is mistaken in thinking that uh, President Obama's National Security Council staff and their interagency process is a debacle because they don't know what they're doing. They, they're fumbling their way to this. The person that we interviewed actually said that that's exactly wrong, that this is a debacle by design. 
That is, the president is getting the interagency he wants, where he can appoint a team of rivals, and it doesn't matter because he's not going to take any of their advice, and he's going to ask Ben Rhodes, you know, aren't I a genius about Afghanistan? And Ben Rhodes is going to say, yes, you're a genius, I agree. National security is hard to do right with A-team people. It's impossible to do it well with C-team people. And B-team people pick C-team people, and that's the interagency that the president wanted, and that's what he's got. How do you feel about that assessment, Mark? Well, I, I mean, I think it sort of gets at what I think is the bottom line reality here, which is that this is a president on a whole range of issues that actually I don't think particularly thought he needed advice on anything. I think he thinks he's really his own national security advisor. I remember early in the administration, he told someone he was interviewing for the job of political advisor that he didn't think he needed one because he was his own political advisor, but they told him he had to have one. So he interviewed uh, the person he ended up hiring for that job. And I think just sort of across the board, it has all the hallmarks of a president who I don't think ever took seriously having kind of intellectual peers uh, that could counsel him. I mean, I frankly think that was uh, evident in his choice of General Jones, who was sort of this, um, you know, cardboard resume of a decorated general who Obama barely knew. If you were if you were serious about having a kind of a, a sort of a deep strategic relationship with someone like a Brent Scowcroft, I don't think he's the first guy you would have picked. Um, so I think a lot of this boils down to the, you know, the predilections of the president himself, and in this case, a president who didn't think he needed advice from anyone. Well, that's an interesting analysis. Pride <laughs> goeth before the fall. Uh, Rosa, we're not. You're we're gonna, not. You're going to get the last Well, No, you won't get the last word. I'll get the last <laughs> word. But you'll get the second to last word here. Thanks, David. Um, that's okay. Don't mention it. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a well-known journalist who will go nameless here, although he'll cringe when I tell this story, uh, who spent a lot of time talking to Obama, um, and I think who was well-disposed to Obama. And the thing that this journalist said to me was something along the lines of, um, the more uh, time I spend with Obama, the more I think he's a dick. Um, and it essentially it was... Can we, can we try to guess the, who this person is? No. No? Oh. But, the, the, uh, but, um, but our dozens of listeners are sitting there going, <laughs> what's a journalist? Let's look that up. Um, but Mark Landler's a journalist, and it's not Mark Landler. I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> Um, who would never use language like this and, in fact, is a little embarrassed that we're doing it, I'm sure. But What's this we stuff? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but Thank you. Um, but, but, Rosa, is the problem with this administration not that Ben Rhodes is an asshole, but in fact, uh, that, and that not that Ben Rhodes is the president's brain, but that, in fact, the president... I'm not going to finish the sentence. Uh -huh. Maybe yeah, the problem. Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> okay, this this is a hard one, David. Um, the president. I I have heard also <laughs> from people who spent a lot of time with him. I am not one of those people. Um, although I did once get to shake hands with Bo the dog. Um, the the president <laughs> doesn't enjoy being president. He hates it. 
it stinks. He gets bored. He's on his BlackBerry during meetings with foreign officials. You know, they're boring. It's very unpleasant. He has to deal with a lot of stupid people. He has to deal with a lot of liars. That is very, very annoying. And he would rather be doing a million other things than most of what he is supposed to do as president. And I completely get that. I completely respect that. I would make a horrible president because I would also be on my BlackBerry during meetings and want to go read a novel instead of talk to foreign leaders and not want to deal with you know, stupid stuff I didn't want to have to deal with and sleep late and so forth. The difference, obviously, is that I did not ask millions of people to send me to the White House because, you know, (laughs) A, they wouldn't, and B, I know I would be a horrible president. And I think Barack Obama, you know, he... It's not so much that he's a a word that we won't use on our family podcast. It's it's that he's got the wrong personality. You know, he... And I think this goes back to the, you know, the title of Mark's book, Alter Egos, which you should all run out and buy, which probably, as one uh, review noted, should have been just called egos or giant egos. <laughs> you know, he ran for president out of ego. And wouldn't it be cool to be elected president? Yeah, that would be really cool. And then he realized he hated everything about the job. And he didn't make much of an effort to hide it. And he hired people who also didn't make much of an effort to hide the fact that they thought most of what they had to do was really annoying. And that's not so great for the country. I, I empathize. He shouldn't have been president. It's a fantastic analysis, and it leads one to conclude that if you wanted to be the winner of the smugness Olympics, the goal has to be getting the most powerful job in the world and being above it. Yes. Then you... I am too cool for the Oval Office. I am too cool. I am, And, you know, there's a place for people like that academia. Um, (laughs) And indeed, don't worry. Well, I I better not say anything, but I I, I do feel that many institutions I'm affiliated with would be very honored to have Barack Obama come and join the faculty. Well, students are used to being condescended to. (laughs) Anyway, it's it's always a pleasure to do these, and Mark, I'm not sure you agree, but but stick around. I'm happy because as soon as soon as we're done with this, we'll record another one of these dreary episodes, and uh, then a week later, after you finish listening to this, you can listen to that one, and won't that fill up your exciting lives, all you loser nerds out there in international <laughs> David, relations? You gotta stop insulting David, it is our not a winning strategy to you insult sound like Ben Rhodes, David. Yeah. Us afloat. <laughs> uh, I am. I don't want to be in the blob. I want to be. I want to be on the inside with all the cool kids. Well, it's I did, awful it did, out here. I mean, on the Schadenfreude front, I did find it particularly irritating that that the ultimate insider, uh, senior presidential aide uh, in the second term of uh, of an administration, feels that he's a, an outsider, and and uh, everybody on the outside is part of the establishment. Yeah, yes. that is that is Washington dyslexia for you folks. Um, so anyway, we've got to wrap this up. Thank you very much. Please keep those tweets and cards coming in. We love hearing from our uh, both of our listeners, listeners, 12 <laughs> listeners. And uh, we'll be back next week with something equally profane and insightful. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thank Corey. Thank you, David. And thanks, Rosa. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.